Well, good morning, church family. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. We're in the middle of a series going through the letter um, of 1 Peter, looking at this theme, what is it like to be exiles, foreigners, strangers in our world today, knowing that this is not our home. We're just passing through headed to the place that we belong to, headed to uh, heaven. And so we've been looking through the letter. We are now uh, in the middle of chapter number three. And so open your Bible there. As you do, uh, most of you know, I've got, I've got two kids. Uh, my son is 10, my daughter's eight. And uh, Josiah, my, my son, my oldest, uh, he's in a lot of different little league sports. Right now, the, the sport of, of choice or season is baseball. Now, many of you have been in that season of life, or you're in that season of life, or you just left that season of life, whatever that is, but you remember uh, competitive sports. Now, one thing about me that you may or may not know is that I am an extremely competitive person. I absolutely hate to lose. In fact, if I'm not careful, I will attempt almost anything uh, to win. You've probably heard this phrase before, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Anybody heard that before? Uh, my competitive spirit sometimes pushes me to that type of limit. Now, let me correct this because the 8 a.m. crowd uh, really accused me of being a cheater. And so I need to make sure you're aware my competitive spirit pushes me uh, to that breaking point. I'm not saying that I do uh, cheat in order to win. But nonetheless, you know, you judge me however you want to. That's fine. I know it's not good, but that's the type of competitive spirit that I have within me. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought about an old movie and I uh, wanted to show you a little clip from that uh, movie that really kind of, I hope at least, you connect in some level with this dad when it comes to a competitive spirit and when it comes to formulating a strategy in order to win, a strategy for victory. Watch this clip and see if you resonate with this. Let's go, Tigers, bring it in. Bring it in, guys. Let's go. Grab some bench. Look how much time it takes for them to come in. Take a seat. Let's go. Okay, guys. As you come here early today, so we can talk about some sloppy play. It's come to my attention that lately I've noticed a, a general blatant disregard for our game plan. Ambrose. Yeah. Saw a bunch of nonsense out there. What was going through your head out there last week? I was breaking my back for you, Coach, because of my love for the game. Liar! Jack. What? Who are you supposed to pass the ball to? The Italians. Right, Alex, when? When I come in contact with the ball. The instant you come in contact with the ball. That's our strategy. It's one of the many plays we've worked out. It's the only play we've worked out. How many sarcastic pills did you take this morning? Coach, I'm just... Well, Coach, I just changed it. All right, now you're probably thinking, you know, Danny, what could this possibly have to do with First Peter? Well, the only way that this coach felt like their team could win was to get the ball to the Italians. Maybe you've seen uh, that, that movie before, but he, here was the, uh, the, the point for them. Their victory was through their strategy, and their strategy was to get the ball to the Italians. Well, as I was thinking about that video clip and reading 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, I kind of reflected on my own competitive spirit, my own desire to win at all costs, my own desire for victory, and it changed to the context of Jesus. I want you to listen to what Peter writes. Here's, here's what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. He said, 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now I want to pause for a second and just interject this thought. None of us could pay for sin and bring people back to God. Jesus is the only strategy for that. You with me? He goes on, he says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now I want to pause again because I want you to think about this. None of us could go in spirit to proclaim anything to the spirits in prison. Jesus was the only strategy for that. You with me? He goes on, Peter, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I want to pause again because I want you to think about something. It wasn't through my resurrection or your resurrection. Jesus was the only one who could be this strategy. Peter goes on, he says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now I want to pause again and interject another thought. Nothing has been subjected to me or to you. Jesus is the only strategy. What I love about what Peter writes here is that he's been helping the church understand how they can live for Jesus as exiles, as strangers, as foreigners in a land that wasn't their home. He's been discussing the church's submission for the sake of the gospel and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But now he's about to put it all in proper context. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, this discussion isn't about our suffering. It isn't about our submission. This discussion is about our Savior, and his name is Jesus. Here's what I feel like this passage of Scripture is like. It's like if God's whiteboard that he's, that he's holding up, he's, he's holding up a whiteboard, he's the coach looking at us as his team, and the whiteboard would really only have one simple strategy for our victory. It would be a name in the middle of the board that would be circled a million times, and that name is Jesus. Victory is in the strategy, and the only strategy that can bring victory is Jesus. Listen, Peter shows us why this is the case, and I want to point it out to you just briefly this morning. Let me show you why Jesus is our victory. Here's the first thing that Peter talks about. It's because of the debt he paid. In reference to Jesus and our victory in him, it is because of the debt that Jesus paid. Look back at verse 18. Here's what Peter wrote. For Christ also suffered once for sin. He's reflecting back on the suffering that he talked about the church will go through as they reflect Jesus in a world that doesn't care about him. We will endure suffering, but it will be nothing like what Jesus, our Savior, has already endured on our behalf. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I want to show you a couple of things about the debt that he paid. Here's the first one. My sin is what he redeemed. 
Like when we talk about the debt that Jesus paid, it wasn't his debt. It wasn't his sin. He owed nothing. It's my sin that he redeemed. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Well, who's the righteous? Jesus is. Who's the unrighteous? We are. Who's the one that suffered? The righteous one did, not us. You see, the debt that was paid was my sin, and he redeemed it. Here's what Isaiah wrote about Jesus in chapter 53, verse 5. He said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen, it's not my wounds. It's not your wounds. You could not pay the debt. Only Jesus could. You say, Danny, why is our victory in Jesus? Because of the debt he paid. He's the only one who could redeem our sin. You see, there's two ways that the debt we owed could be canceled. Number one, we could die as the payment unless we could live perfectly according to God's standard, but we know we can't. So one way the sin debt will be paid for is through our death and our eternal punishment and separation from God for our sins. Or secondly, someone who could live perfectly according to God's standard dies in our place. Friends, that is the righteous for the unrighteous. This is what we refer to as the great exchange that Jesus made for us. He took our place on the cross and we took his place in righteousness. Paul probably describes it best when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This phrase, once for sins, means of perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. And this is something so much different from what God's people had done for centuries before this moment. They were used to sacrificing animals throughout the year to cover their sin. As a matter of fact, during Passover, over a quarter million sheep would be slaughtered, and that was just one time during the year. But this was no longer the case. Jesus died once for sins, and nothing more will ever be needed. My sin has been redeemed through Jesus. This is the debt that he paid. But I want to show you something else about the debt that he paid, and it's simply this. My separation is what he recovered. He recovered my relationship with God. Here's what Peter wrote, that he might bring us to God. The word for he might bring in the noun form is a title for an official who controlled access to the king. You see, this guy would verify whoever it was that wanted to get to the king, and once he verified that that person had access, he would then announce to everybody else who that person was and what their business was with the king. They could not get access without this guy allowing them access. Friends, that's Jesus for us. We couldn't have access to God. He brings us access through his death, through the debt that he paid. My separation from God has been recovered. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest 
forever. You see, we didn't have access to God. We couldn't go behind the curtain, but now we can because Jesus has made a way for us to be made right with God. You see, friends, we were far from God with no way back. We couldn't get to him no matter how hard we tried. The separation was simply too great. Yet Jesus brought us back through his death on the cross. My sin has been redeemed. My separation has been recovered. I no longer have to be far off. You no longer have to be far off. We can be reunited, restored to the relationship that God has always designed for me and you to have with him. Friends, the victory is in the strategy and the strategy is Jesus. Praise God for the debt that he paid. Let me show you else how Peter talks about our victory in Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus the victory? Well, it's because of the demons he punished. It's an interesting moment that Peter writes about. Look back at verse 18. We'll start from there again. Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then he continues. He says, Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, friends, this is one of the most difficult and challenging passages to understand in the entire Bible. I think what stands out most to me above all of the confusion that may exist within these verses is this simple truth, the power of Jesus, even over what Peter calls the spirits in prison. Now, I want to focus on a couple of things just to help us understand really the victory that we have in Jesus as it is seen in his power over demons and the devil and forces of evil. He commands it all. It's all under his feet. This is the picture of our victory. But to understand it a little bit more clearly, let me answer a couple of questions to the best of my ability. What does Peter mean when he writes, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Well, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that Jesus never died. Some people hold to a false teaching that Jesus didn't really die. He went into a coma and then came awake while he was in the tomb and snuck out when no one was looking, right? There's this idea that Jesus really didn't die for the sins of the world. Well, we know that is false. As a matter of fact, Luke said this in chapter 23, verse 46 of his gospel. He said, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You see, his flesh died, but his spirit was given to the Lord. It seems as though Peter's helping us to understand that though Jesus died, his body laid in the tomb, he still had some work to do before the resurrection. You see, his flesh was gone, but he committed his spirit to God. Beyond simply submitting to God's will, he had more to accomplish. Also, I think this reference isn't referring to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the state of Jesus' existence apart from his fleshly body and before the resurrection. Now, I know this is a little tough to think about, but here's the picture. Apparently, according to Peter, 
when Jesus died and his flesh was placed in the tomb, his spirit still had some work to accomplish. And so while his body was in the tomb, his spirit was still accomplishing the mission of God. Now, Danny, what did he do? I'm not exactly sure what all happened during that time. I guess we can ask God about it when we see him. But Peter does give us some insight into a little bit of that activity. Peter tells us this. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Now, the word for proclaimed is different than the word for preaching the gospel. This helps us understand that Jesus wasn't going to give good news to those in prison. You see, in the ancient world, heralds would go before an army as it returned to its home to proclaim victory. It seems as though that's what Jesus was going to do. Not evangelize and lead people to faith in him, but rather to proclaim victory over something. Now, the word used for spirits is almost never used in reference to humans. Peter tells us that they were those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. These spirits, according to what we can collect from Scripture, must be something different than humans, or Peter would have used a different word. Now, the word for prison literally means a cage. The book of Revelation refers to this prison as the bottomless pit, literally the pit of the abyss. It has various usages throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, let me read a couple of them to you. It's used in Revelation to describe the capital city of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. Here's what John wrote. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Well, that word for haunt is the word prison, the same one that Peter uses here. Obviously, this prison was a pretty bad place. It's also used to describe the prison of Satan himself in Revelation 20, verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Same word Peter uses here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, it seems as though Peter's making reference to a visit that the Lord made to the underworld during his death. Now, I want to help us picture this a little bit. You may think, Danny, I don't care about this history lesson or the breakdown of these words. I'm doing my best not to bore you. But I do want you to let it settle in, the power of Jesus, as even in his spirit, he goes to proclaim victory. Now, there's several words that help us better understand the underworld or maybe get more confused about the underworld as it pertains to the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first word is the word Gehenna. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew, Gehinnom, known as the Valley of Hinnom. The valley was a deep and narrow ravine with steep rocky sides to the south and west of Jerusalem. Another name for this place was Tophet. Now on the south end, which overlooked the eastern side of the valley, King Solomon built high places for Moloch, a pagan god. Helpless little children were sacrificed there in a cruel and hideous fashion to that particular demon god. It wasn't until King Josiah in 2 Kings 23 puts an end to the whores by spreading human bones and filth over the place, making it unclean. Now, I only tell you that because after this moment when King Josiah put all these bones out there and proclaimed it a place that was so disgusting that no one would go there, it became the garbage dump of the city. 
Scholars claim that there were fires there that could not be put out, constantly consuming the bodies of the dead. Seems like a great picture of hell and probably why Jesus used this word often to describe it in the Gospels. You remember some of these, a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? Where the fire will never be quenched, where the worm never dies. This is Gehenna. The second word is the word Hades. You might be a little more familiar with this word. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. Now, this is the usual word used by the Greeks to describe the unseen world or what we would call the afterlife. It occurs 11 times in the New Testament, and the Hebrew equivalent is used 65 times in the Old Testament. It really refers to the state of death, not so much maybe a literal location. It's described mostly in the Old Testament and before Jesus' ascension. Now, it consisted of two sides that were separated by a huge ditch. One side was a place of continuous torment, while the other side was a place of rest and comfort, oftentimes called Abraham's bosom or paradise. This is considered to be the heaven of the Old Testament, at least the afterlife of the Old Testament, where those awaiting the resurrection of Jesus lived. Many believe Jesus went here after his resurrection to condemn those who didn't believe in him and to take those who did with him to heaven. Now, the third one is the word abyssos. This word means the abyss or the bottomless pit. The word occurs nine times in the New Testament. Jesus, in fact, cast out the legion of demons from the man in the graveyard. And when he did, the demons asked him not to send them to the abyss. Matter of fact, if you read in Revelation chapter 9, the abyss seems to be a pretty horrifying place. Now, during the end times, the Antichrist has two comings. In the earlier part of his reign, he's called the beast out of the sea. He's going to die only to be brought back to life again by the false prophet. Then he will be even greater and known as the beast out of the abyss. There's that word again. Some scholars believe that this is where Judas has been sent since he's the only person called the son of perdition other than the Antichrist. Satan is also to be locked up in the abyss during the millennial reign of Jesus. Listen, you can read so much more about this than I could ever tell you. I'm just giving you an overview. The final word that's typically used for the afterlife or refers to something other than heaven is the word Tartarus. It only occurs in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what Peter writes. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. It's the word for hell that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 2. What a horrible place those angels must have been. Peter uses this word for the underworld to speak of a place where angels reside, a prison for them. Homer, famous ancient author, uses this word to identify the place where the titans or the giants were sent due to their rebellion of Zeus. Matter of fact, there's an interesting thought that Greek mythology might simply be an exaggeration of the truth of Scripture from the writings of Peter, or possibly that Peter was using terminology that the Greeks would relate to. Tartarus is the prison that held the twice-fallen angels, and it is the prison most likely that Peter is talking about here. So you say, hey, why do you give us that history lesson? Because if this particular wicked place that could hold this type of power is where Jesus goes, then it's very interesting to understand the authority of Christ. So Jesus 
has gone to the underworld to proclaim to the spirits in prison, we've got to ask ourselves this question, who are those spirits? Who are those who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah? Who exactly are the spirits that Peter's talking about? Well, we have an account from Genesis, actually in the days of Noah, that seems to be referring to these particular spirits. I want to read it to you. It's from Genesis chapter 6. You've probably read it before. Here's how it starts. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They were beautiful. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, or Nephilim, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the sons of God that's referenced in Genesis chapter 6 is probably a reference to angels because it's used that way just about every time in the Old Testament. Nephilim or Nephilim, a lot of people have questions about who they were. They're thought by many scholars to be giants. The word is a Hebrew transliteration that means the fallen ones or those of great power that crush people. Some scholars believe that the text is stating that they are the result of relations between the demons and women, whereas others believe they're just compared together and the Nephilim were here before this occasion. Nonetheless, here's the picture that Genesis, that Moses is giving us from the beginning of time. He's giving us the picture of Satan always scheming, always planning to destroy the work of God. Let me give you an example of this. We see this in the Garden of Eden when the devil tricks Adam and Eve. We see this throughout the Old Testament as the devil tries to destroy the Israelites, God's chosen people. We see this as the devil tried to kill Jesus as a baby, then leads men to crucify. We see this as he tries to destroy the church that continues to profess the name of Christ. Don't forget what Paul reminded us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, this corruption from the fallen angels was another attempt of Satan to corrupt the world. The devil remembered what God had told him in the garden the day sin entered mankind. God told him that the offspring of woman would be his defeat a reference to the coming of Jesus. If Satan could corrupt the bloodline of man by sending his fallen angels, demons, to make offspring with women so that Jesus could not come from woman, if he could create that, if he could pollute the bloodline, then maybe that offspring would never be born. Maybe the Christ would never be his defeat. But God's patience is amazing, along with his grace. He gave sinners plenty of time to turn from their sin, not to mention the time that he gave before Noah. He gave them 120 years to repent as Noah was building the ark. The earth was becoming crazy wicked by the time Noah had his three sons, and it all came to a climax when the angels that were fallen from heaven decided to take women of earth and produce children. Matter of fact, you may or may not remember this, but here's what God said after this happened. He said in Genesis 6, 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We know what happened after that. He caused the flood to take out all of mankind. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, Danny, why is all this important? You spent a whole lot of time talking about things I don't even, I'm never even going to remember. Well, here's why. Because God had seen all mankind be corrupted except for Noah and his family. The devil had succeeded in corrupting almost the whole world. Not only were the people becoming wicked, but Satan had brought down demons to help further corrupt the world. He could have won the victory right then and there if he had convinced the whole world to turn its back on God. But God, it's that phrase we love so much, saved the world by destroying all those who were corrupting it. All he could save was Noah and his family. So when Jesus had won the victory, he takes the trip down there to Satan and the old foes who tried to destroy the world back in the days of Noah, and he proclaimed to them the victory he had won. As a matter of fact, other New Testament writers help us understand what these former foes were doing before Jesus showed up. Listen to this. He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And the angels who did not stay within their own position Position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Friends, listen to me. At this point in time, the time that Peter's writing to the church in their exile, the people must have thought there's no way that the world could get any worse. Satan had launched a new attack on the church with all of his corruption. He was trying to stop the saving power of Christ through killing those who professed him. However, Satan had no more hope in winning during these times than when he did during the times of Noah. The same Jesus that punished the demons who locked them up in prison bound by chains is the same Jesus that gives us victory today. Friends, victory is in the strategy, and the strategy is Jesus. We have victory because of the debt that he paid. We have victory because of the demons that he punished. We have victory because of the deliverance he provided. Let me show you this. I'm going to move on. He goes on in verse 20, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now watch this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like the way the New Living Translation puts this verse. It helps us understand a little bit more of what Peter's writing. Here's how it translates it. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what happened shortly after God saw that the whole world was terrible? He sent the flood. And the flood lasted and lasted, and the judgment of God rained down and rained down and rained down and rained down. But guess who never experienced the judgment? Noah and his family. Why? Because they were in the ark. You say, Danny, why is Peter referencing that? Why is he talking about that water like baptism? Here's why. The ark was just a picture of Jesus. Because friends, listen, the wrath of God, his judgment, the penalty of sin will rain down on every person who's not in the ark. You say, what do you mean? Every person who's not in Jesus. Say, Danny, are we saved by baptism? No, 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 no. Don't miss what Peter wrote. It's not by the washing away of dirt from your body. That's not what Peter's saying. 
He's saying baptism is a picture of salvation because you are being identified with the resurrection of Jesus. You, my friends, who claim Christ are now in the ark. You are in Christ. And when all the judgment comes down, not a drop of water, not a, not a little bit of wind will even brush against your face. Why? Because Jesus took all of it for you and for me. You say, Danny, why is our victory in Jesus? It's because of the deliverance that he provided. Should we be out there in the water? Absolutely. Should we have ever had a spot in the ark? No. Do we deserve what Christ offers? We do not, but he offers it anyway because he provides deliverance that we couldn't provide for ourselves. Friends, will you surrender to Jesus? Let me show you this last one, number four. Why is victory in Jesus? Well, certainly because of the debt he paid, the demons he punished, and the deliverance he provided. But I wanna show you this last one because it's so huge. Our victory is in Jesus because of the dominion he possesses. Look at verse 22, and I'm done. Look back at it. He said, Peter wrote, who has gone, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And there are so many interesting things about these verses. However, nothing is better than what we read in this verse, having been subjected to Jesus. Listen, Paul reminds us of the dominion of Jesus in Philippians chapter two, when he wrote these words, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine those fallen angels, those mighty men of old, that powerful force that's locked up in that prison? Can you imagine the abilities those creatures have, but yet, just like every other person, their knee will bend at the name of Jesus? Danny, what do you mean? It's because of the dominion he possesses. I love what the writer of Hebrews reminds us about Jesus's dominion. In the very first chapter of Hebrews, he wrote, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Friends, all things on heaven and in earth and under the earth are subjected to Jesus. He has dominion over it all. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter what great forces are at work against the church, Jesus stands above them all. You say, Danny, why do you keep screaming about this? Here's why. Do you know him? Listen, our victory is not in our own abilities. Our victory is not in being a good church member. Our victory is not in the amount of money we have or the amount of good things we do. Our victory is in Jesus alone. He is the strategy. There is no other strategy. But Danny, I did this. But Danny, do you know what I did then? But Danny, do you know where I come from? I don't care. Victory is in the strategy, and the strategy is Jesus. So let me ask you a couple of things, friends. 
Do you know him? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to him? Are you following him? You say, Danny, I've done it. I've given my life to Jesus. Well, let me ask you this. Are you following him currently today? Are you living after the one who has victory over it all? You don't have it. I don't have it. We're not good enough. He is. But let me tell you something. The strategy's there. His name is Jesus, and he's offering it all to us. When will we submit? When will we surrender? When will we get serious about following him? Every knee will bow. Friend has yours. Why wait till the day when it's forced when you have the opportunity to choose him now. Will you surrender your life? Will you follow? Will you submit to Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, you're awesome.